What if it's already too late? Being an activist in the Anthropocene. I had a terrible thought recently. What if it's already too late? Actually, this idea has been haunting me for some time, hovering on the boundary between my conscious and unconscious mind. In 2016, Bill McKibben, founder of the climate activist organization 350.org, came to speak at a rally at the BP Tar Stands refinery in Whiting, Indiana. Whiting is, partic- is practically in my backyard, in the highly industrialized northwest corner of Indiana. The occasion was a series of coordinated direct actions around the world against the fossil fuel industry, called Break Free, collectively hailed as the largest act of civil disobedience in the history of the environmental movement. What struck me about McKibben, though, was his tone of, well, hopelessness. Here's how he concluded his 10-minute speech. Quote, I wish that I could guarantee you that we're all going to win in the end, the whole thing. And I can't, because we don't know. The physics of climate change is pretty daunting at this point. The momentum of it is pretty big. We're not going to win everything. We're not going to stop global climate change. It's too late for that. But the work you're doing literally couldn't be more important. There's not many people who get to say in their say that in their lives, I'm doing the most important thing I could be doing. But that's what you guys are doing today. I can't guarantee you're going to win, but I can guarantee you in every corner of the world that we're going to fight. And that's going to be enough for now, just knowing that we're taking it on, unquote. That's pretty sobering material for a speech at an environmental activist rally, not to mention a speech by one of the most visible leaders of the climate and the climate movement. We're not going to stop global warming, global climate change. It's too late for that. At the time, I was caught up in the enthusiasm of participating in my first act of civil disobedience, so I didn't think much about McKibben's words. But they kept coming back to me. What did he just say? I remembered McKibben's words later when I was watching Aaron Sorkin's HBO TV series, The Newsroom. In one scene, a high-ranking scientist in the EPA is being interviewed by the show's lead, a news anchor played by Jeff Daniels. The scientist says that the latest measurements of atmospheric CO2 had passed the point of 400 parts per million. He then proceeds to explain what this means for human beings. EPA scientist. The last time there was this much CO2 in the air, the oceans were 80 feet higher than they are now. Two things you should know. Half the world's population lives within 120 miles of an ocean. News anchor. And the the other? Scientist. Humans can't breathe underwater. The anchor then asks the scientist what his prognosis for humanity is. A thousand years? Two thousand years? The scientific response was bone-chilling. A person has already been born who will die due to catastrophic failure of the planet. After a pause to get his bearings, the anchor resumes... You're saying the situation is dire. Not exactly. Your house is burning to the ground. The situation is dire. Your house has already burned to the ground. The situation is over. So what can we do to reverse this? Well, there's a lot we could do. Anchor, good. 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. But now, no. Can you make an analogy that might might help us understand? Scientist, sure. It's as if you're sitting in your car, in your garage, with the engine running and the door closed, and you've slipped into unconsciousness, and that's it. 
What if someone comes and opens the door? You're already dead. What if the person got there in time? Then you'd be saved. Okay, so now what's the CO2 equivalent of getting there on time? Shutting off the car 20 years ago. You sound like you're saying it's hopeless. Yeah. The first time I watched this, I felt a flood of conflicting emotions, a combination of sinking horror and the absurd desire to laugh. I recognize it now as gallows humor. This was a television show, but it's not fiction. In the real world, we passed 400 parts per million not long after that episode aired. And the fatalism of Sorkin's EPA scientist makes sense when we understand what 400 parts per million really means. In 1988, NASA scientist James Hansen drew public attention to climate change when he testified before Congress. Twenty years later, in 2007, Hansen told the world that 350 parts per million of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is the safe upper limit to avoid a climate tipping point. But we had already passed that point in 1988. At the time of my writing this, we have already seen CO2 levels as high as 415 parts per million, and we are permanently over 400 parts per million. We're already feeling the effects. The planet is warmer than it has been in the last 11,000 years. No wonder McKibben was fatalistic when I heard him speak in 2016. When he organized 350.org in 2007, it was already two decades after we had passed the safe threshold. Now we're in our third decade, and CO2 levels have only continued to rise, with no sign of abating. In fact, more carbon has been released into the atmosphere since Hansen's 1988 congressional testimony than has been released in the entire history of civilizations before that. Science fiction? Quote from Emerson, The end of the human race will be that it will eventually die of civilization. Back on the TV show, the news anchor asks the EPA scientist to explain what all this would look like. The scientist. Well, mass migrations, food and water shortages, spread of deadly disease, endless wildfires, way too many to keep under control, storms that have the power to level cities, blacken the sky, and create permanent darkness. In the hope that this was, a hy was hyperbole, I started researching. The math is right on, and according to a Mother Jones article that fact-checked the script, the predictions are pretty reasonable. In 2014, just as I was starting to wake up to climate change, the New York Times reported that a large body of research indicated that it is inevitable, quote-unquote, that the planetary temperature will rise by 2 degrees Celsius, that's 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and that we are locked into a future of drought, food and water shortages, and rising sea levels. And that's the optimistic estimate. In fact, we're on track for more than 4 degrees Celsius of warming. That's the temperature difference between the last ice age and the world now. So it's reasonable to expect the world of the near future to be as different from today as today is from the ice age. According to the Times, that kind of change might render the planet uninhabitable to human beings. Reports like this have now become part of our daily news diet. It's shocking that they don't trigger a revolution. But as Steven Yeun's character says in the movie Sorry to Bother You, when people see a problem that they don't know how to solve, their response is to get used to it. John Michael Greer, author of Dark Age America, 2016, agrees with Sorkin's prognosis. Audio editor's note, Michael Dowd speaking. Um, I actually recorded the uh, official audiobook of John Michael Greer's Dark Age America. I consider it one of the most important books I've read in the last decade. 
From John Michael Greer's vantage point, this bleak prediction is only notable for what it leaves out. Expanding war and ethnic conflict, increasing frequent environmental disasters, increasingly frequent environmental disasters, a return to a subsistence economy, even in developed countries, the collapse of governmental institutions, the rise of charismatic authoritarian strongmen, and drastically declining human population. Anywhere from uh, uh, a 70% reduction from the current 7.5 billion to a sustainable 1 or 2 billion to complete human extinction. Does this sound like science fiction? If it does, it's not surprising, since these themes are increasingly common in our entertainment. There are, fo- there are the food shortages, the police state, and the walled-off cities depicted in USA's colony. There are the government-endorsed religious fundamentalism and re- regressive sexual politics in Hulu's The Handmaiden's Tale. There are the crop failures, resource depletion, and declining population in the movie Interstellar. There are the collapse of governments, the rise of walled-off corporate states, and the sprawling climate refugee encampments in the sci-fi series Incorporated. More on that later. And let's not forget the rise of feudal warlords like Negan, the villain in AMC's The Walking Dead. Minus the aliens and zombies, each and every one of these fictional scenarios is likely to be a part of humanity's reality in the not-so-distant future. The decline has already begun. Its effects can be seen everywhere, but we rarely notice them because the changes are usually incremental rather than sudden. If we step back a minute from the daily barrage of news, we can see it. Superstorms like the three that struck the Atlantic in 2017, Harvey, Maria, and Irma, all becoming more common, or or are becoming more common. We we, We have already or will very soon reach the point of peak oil, after which the extraction of oil will enter a terminal decline, which will lead to more and more desperate and destructive attempts to extract the last drop. Most of our topsoil is already gone. Large parts of the U.S. are getting hotter and or wetter. There are record wildfires and droughts in the western U.S., not to mention in Syria, where the drought led to catastrophic civil war. Clean water is being privatized. Tens of thousands of people are denied access to water in cities like Philadelphia and Detroit. The American dream, quote-unquote, of rising affluence has disappeared, for those who ever had access to it, as millions of people have lost jobs with benefits and are forced into effectively, effective corporate slavery or precarious employment with no health care or social security. The con- concomitant rise of the surveillance state, the militarization of domestic police forces, and the popular legitimization of the alt-right. Not to mention the election of a demagogue would-be dictator as president of the country that holds itself out to, to the world as the bastion of democracy, and he wants to build a literal wall. This was the stuff of science fiction not, long, not too long ago. Today, it's our reality and our entertainment. While shows like The Handmaiden's Tale and Colony have the potential to numb us to our present reality, sometimes science fiction can help us see our present more clearly. Watching one of these shows not too long ago, I had another terrible thought. What if none of this is an accident? Everything is going according to plan. Quote from Dmitry Orlov. 
everything is going according to plan. I don't know whose plan it is, and I think it's a really stupid plan, but everything is going according to it anyway. Unquote. For a long time, I thought racism was a glitch in the American social system, something that could be overcome with time and education. Eventually, however, I began to see how racism is actually a function of a capitalist system. It keeps the poor and working classes divided along race lines to the benefit of the rich. As Malcolm X succinctly put it, quote, you can't have capitalism without racism, unquote. What if, like racism, climate change is not an accident, uh, accidental byproduct of our capitalist system? What if it isn't a bug, but a feature? What if the system isn't broken, as progressives claim? What if the system is functioning exactly as it's supposed to? It was another television show that got me thinking about this, a series called Incorporated, which premiered on Sci-Fi in 2016. The premise of the show was that the world's governments had gone bankrupt and had been effectively replaced by large corporations. These corporations functioned in walled-off cities called Green Zones, outside of which was a sea of depleted people living in Red Zones, which included refugee camps overflowing with people having fled coastal cities flooded due to climate change. In the show, there is virtually no mobility between residents of the Green Zone, the corporate class, and the residents of the Red Zone, the unincorporated. There are no checks on corporations other than the threat of violence from other corporations. Although they live very privileged lives by comparison, those living within the corporate walls are virtual slaves to the corporation. As I watched this, I was struck by two thoughts. The first was the close similarity between Incorporated's dystopic future and our present reality. My second thought was, what if this is the goal? What if this is the goal? What if this is the desired outcome for at least some of the corporate class? Zero government regulation. Anything can be brought, bought for a price. Extremely exclusive social status. Technological wonders for the few who can afford them. In short, what if everything is going according to plan? It doesn't require believing in a conspiracy to see that our capitalist system is driving us toward the future depicted in Incorporated and that it isn't by accident. For it to function, capitalism depends on growth. Without growth, the incentive for capital investment disappears and the system breaks down. In an ideal capitalist system, there are no limits to growth. In order to grow without limit, capitalism needs two things, unlimited demand and unlimited supply. On the demand side, this means conspicuous consumption, socially manufactured needs, and disposable goods. On the supply side, this means access to cheap and abundant energy, i.e. fossil fuels. Without these conditions, the system cannot produce the kinds of surpluses that motivate the capital investment that perpetuates the system. But these conditions, unchecked consumption and the burning of fossil fuels, inevitably lead to disasters, both economic and environmental. And it turns out, that's part of the system too. In The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, 2007, Naomi Klein describes how the corporate class has learned to profit from natural and economic disasters by pushing through policies of deregulation and privatization while the, impact, while, while the impacted citizenry is too distracted and disorganized by the disaster to notice. Examples include Hurricane Katrina, the Gulf War, and 9-11, to name just a few of the many. The corporate class 
benefits from these policies, while the rest of the populace is left with collapsing public infrastructure, declining incomes, and uh, increasing unemployment. And here's a quote, a several paragraph quote from Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine. Quote, an economic system that requires constant growth while bucking almost all serious attempts at environmental regulation generates a steady stream of disasters all on its own whether military, ecological, or financial. The appetite for easy, short-term profits is offered by purely speculative investment has turned uh, the stock, currency, and real estate markets into, a crisis creation, into crisis creation machines. Our common addiction to dirty, non-renewable energy sources keeps other kinds of, em- of emergencies coming. Natural disasters and wars raged, waged over scarce resources which in turn create terrorist blowback. Given the boiling temperatures, both climatic and political, future disasters need not be cooked up in dark conspiracies. All indications are that simply by staying the current course, they will keep coming with ever more ferocious intensity. Disaster generation can therefore be left to the market's invisible hand. While the disaster capitalism complex does not deliberately scheme to create the cataclysms on which it feeds, though Iraq may be a notable exception, there is plenty of evidence that, it is, that its component industries work very hard indeed to make sure the current disastrous trends continue unchallenged. Unquote. According to Klein, this leads to an increasingly divided world. Whether it's post-Gulf War Iraq or post-Katrina New Orleans, everything is divided between green zones and red zones stark partitions between the privileged and the precariat. In the red zones, infrastructure is left to decay and social services are stripped of resources, while the privileged withdraw to the gated green zones, which are protected by police and military. In many places, this is the present-day reality, and it's not so far removed from the future depicted in Incorporated. We're fucked. Quote from Robinson Jeffers, There is no reason for amazement. Surely one always knew that cultures decay and life's end is death. Of course, the world of Incorporated isn't the end of the story either. It's just a chapter in the story of civilizational decline. And we know how that story ends. Death. Our civilization is going to die. If you're like me, you need to sit with that last sentence for a while. Of course, there are plenty of people out there who are saying otherwise. You could pick different sources to believe. With the World Wide Web at our fingertips, it's quite easy nowadays to choose the answers you like. We could choose more comforting answers. But it was a question, not an answer, which really devastated my hope. Radical environmentalist Derek Jensen asks this question of his audiences, and it's one that I think every environmental activist should ask themselves. Do you think this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of life? Again, do you think that this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of life? That question is what convinced me that the world as we know it is going to end sooner rather than later. And more and more experts are coming to the same conclusion. Like Brad Werner, a pink haired complex systems researcher who in 2012 presented a provocatively titled paper to thousands of scientists at the meeting of the American Geophysical Union titled, 
Is Earth Fucked? Werner's answer, more or less. Or like Daniel Kahneman, the cognitive psychologist who won a Nobel Prize for his studies of how humans respond to problems that require immediate personal sacrifices in order to avoid uncertain collective losses. When asked to assess humanity's chances for survival, Kahneman responded, quote, This is not what you might want to hear. I am very sorry, but I am deeply pessimistic. I see no path to success on climate change, unquote. Or like Mayor Hillman, <clears throat> a social scientist and senior fellow emeritus of the Policy Studies Institute, who spent the last 20 years writing and speaking about climate change policy, and who in 2017 announced his withdrawal from speaking and writing on climate change, declaring, we're doomed. Hillman asked the same question as Jensen. Do we really think human beings will move to zero global emissions in the near future? More specifically, he asks, quote, can you see everyone in a democracy volunteering to, fl- giving up fly- to give up flying? Can you see the majority of the population becoming vegan? Can you see the majority agreeing to restrict the size of their families? Hillman can't. J- Jensen can't. And I can't either. This is the point that is glossed over by so many evangelists of renewable energy. We need to drastically reduce consumption because renewable energy can't replace fossil fuels. Again, this is the point that's glossed over by many, so many evangelists of renewable energy. We need to drastically reduce consumption because renewable energy can't replace fossil fuels. About 250 years ago, human beings started using fossil fuels, first coal, then oil, to power civilization. What followed was an unprecedented gro- explosion of growth. The civilizational progress, quote-unquote, that we take for granted is the result of the burning of fossil fuels. But the fossil fuels are a finite resource, and when they're gone, that will be the end of growth and progress too. It's an underappreciated fact that renewable energy sources cannot produce as much energy as fossil fuels, and neither can nuclear power. Transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables or nuclear only addresses the supply side of the equation. A renewable energy economy would only work if we simultaneously reduced our consumption. We're not talking about people taking shorter showers and turning off lights when they leave the room. We're talking about a contraction of the economy that would crash the global capitalist system. We simply cannot transition to 100% renewable energy economically without also ending capitalism. I'll say it again. We simply can't transition to a 100% renewable energy economy without also ending capitalism. Nothing short of a global socialist revolution is going to be enough, and I'm using revolution quite literally here. But capitalism has proven so adept at adopting, adapting to challenges and absorbing dissent, nothing short of the end of the world is likely to bring it about quote from Frederick Jameson in Future City. Someone once said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. We can now revise that and witness the attempt to imagine capitalism by way of imagining the end of the world, unquote. While it's easy for most people in developed countries to look around and think that all is well, the fact is that we're living in what Roy Scranton calls the gap between sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. We're like the patient who goes to the doctor for a routine checkup and gets bad news. They feel fine, but the doctor returns looking grim. The prognosis is terminal. For some, this might actually be welcome news. I have communist friends who've been waiting for the collapse of capitalism, and I have anarchist friends for whom the 
collapse of civilization would be good tidings of great joy. Quote, everything is going according to plan, indeed. There are even some people who are trying to accelerate the collapse by undermining any attempt to reform capitalism that might prolong its demise. It turns out that the Marxists are partially right. Capitalism is going to collapse, but it won't require the revolution of the working class. It's going to happen through the natural process of of capitalism doing what capitalism does, consuming forests, species, and human potential, and excreting carbon dioxide, toxic chemicals, and misery. In short, eating everything in sight and shitting where it eats. Even if climate change were not a reality, our civilization would still die. Capitalism is just not sustainable. The combination of overconsumption, only partially the result of overpopulation, and overpollution will lead inevitably to to civilizational collapse. Consider the damage capitalism is doing to the planet. That might not be such a bad thing. But unfortunately, our civilization is going to take a good part of the biosphere down with it. The Stages of Grieving for a Civilization A quote from Interstellar, 2014 film. When you become a parent, one thing becomes really clear, and that is that you want to make sure your children feel safe, and it rules out telling a 10-year-old that the world's ending. When my son was 13, he went through an existential crisis. He was losing his faith in the religion that he had been raised in, including the belief in an afterlife. The thought of personal extinction terrified him. Over the next several years, he made peace with his own mortality. He did so, at least in part, by taking refuge in a new faith, the faith in human progress. He could accept the fact that he, would, that he will die one day, but at least the accumulated knowledge of humanity would survive. I felt the same way, and I know many atheists and religious naturalists who do as well. We accept our own mortality while we cling to the faith of an, uh, in the immortality of civilization. But I don't believe that anymore, and I don't know what to say to my son. It turns out it's not just individuals who die, so do civilizations. As John Michael Greer explains in Dark Age America, the last 5,000 years of human history have not been a straight line. There have been many Dark Ages. Europe in the, middle, in the early Middle Ages is only one of the recent examples in the West. There was also the collapse of the Mediterranean and Near Eastern civilization in the Bronze Age. There were three separate Egyptian Dark Ages, and there have been others. The causes of these prior Dark Ages are familiar. Climate change, population growth, soil degradation, and widening social inequality. Quote from G.K. Chesterton. Many clever people like you and uh, like you have trusted to civilization. Many clever people like you have trusted to civilization. Many clever Babylonians, many clever Egyptians, many clever people at the end of Rome. Can you tell me in a wor- in, in a world that is flagrant with the failures of civilization what there is particularly immortal about yours? Unquote. Our present situation is unique, however. Those civilizations before us exceeded the carrying capacity of their land bases, but were part of an interconnected global economy. We are facing collapse, not just on the regional level, but on a planetary scale. And while civilizational decline is not uncommon, the speed at which we are rushing toward ours is. The reason is because we have a terminal case of denial. In his 1974 classic, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker 
theorized that the basic motivation for human behavior is the desire, in fact, the need, to deny the reality of our own deaths. According to Becker, we engage in immortality projects in an attempt to create something that will transcend death. But these immortality projects are maladaptive because they sever us from the flow of life, of which death is a part. We do this on an individual level, but also on a collective level. Western civilization itself can be understood as a collective immortality project, one giant complex attempt to deny our connection to nature and hence our mortality. Climate change denial is just a specific case of a much broader and deeper denial, a denial of our limits. And it's not just climate change deniers who are in denial. Many activists on the other side of the spectrum are in denial as well. I was in denial too. I wasn't denying that climate change was happening, but I was denying what it meant. I believe that we will win, I chanted with the other activists. When we fight, we win. I was in denial. And the origin of that denial, the faith in human progress, is what got us into this mess in the first place. Looking back, a lot of my environmental activism looks like the stages of grief, denial, anger, and bargaining. Then I moved into the depression phase. The good thing about depression is that it allows me to recognize this, this process for what it is. I am grieving for the death of human civilization. The last stage of grief, I am told, is acceptance. But what does that look like? Do we go on protesting? Do we go on fighting, like Bill McKibben says, because fighting is better than doing nothing? 